to the Always Already podcast. You're here today with Emily. And Sid. And John. And a very special guest, a longtime friend of the podcast, podcast enthusiast, <laughs> uh, and first-time guest, uh, visiting assistant professor of political science at Rutgers, uh, and friend of the show, Danielle Hanley. Hi, Danielle. Hi. Thanks for having me, guys. We're so we happy are... you're here. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> Um, I mean, really, you've you've always already been a member of the podcast <laughs> in spirit, if not in practice. I love that. <laughs> Excellent early slip in of the catchphrase, <laughs> the titular, titular catchphrase. I got I got it in like at the fifty eight second mark. It was it's great. Perfect. So <laughs> impressive. I'm so pumped to have been the reason that that got in so early. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's. Uh, we should all feel honored that that happened, really. Um, well, uh, Emily, what are we uh, what are we talking about today? When you said my name, I had a moment of panic. I was like, what book did we read? <laughs> <laughs> today, we are discussing, actually, is there a subtitle to the book? No. Oh, we are discussing Juliet Hooker's uh, Race and the Politics of Solidarity, the Introduction and chapter one, which is titled Mapping the Contours of Political Solidarity, and chapter two, entitled Race and Culture Culture in Liberal Theories of Multiculturalism. Ooh, say that five times fast. <laughs> um, so Danielle, as is, we'll give you the, the first chance to uh, offer an introductory remark that is in fact a question that you don't want to answer. <laughs> As is the tradition in the first comment made on the Always Already podcast. I'm going to answer your question with another question, John. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> uh, this, this is what I miss being in quarantine. Um, right? So I think the the question that I don't want answered is, how do we get this solidarity? <laughs> Ooh. All right. Start thank with you, the for, thank you for joining us on the Always Already no, podcast. Casual, easy lead into I, what I what I take to be the central sort of question that I'm still asking myself. Well, I think another way to think about this question, <laughs> yes, classic, is like we can ask that sort of of the argument of the book, right? I know that there's some hesitation for Hooker around like one fits one size fits all like program for solidarity. Here are the right. five rules. You got it. Um, <laughs> but like, what are the sort of implications of the argument in the, I think in the particular context that she's paying attention to, right? I mean, we could think through yeah. sort of how she's conceptualizing solidarity, like, with the example of what's happening in the U.S. right now around right. Know, COVID lockdown or whatever, or like in like sort of applying it. Oh, I mean, we didn't read the chapter that um, John mentioned before recording that she goes into really in depth in the case of Latin America. But I think yeah. it's like we could try to work it out in practice. But I I feel like there's still a weird hesit or not a hesitation, but a kind of impulse to want a blueprint, even if. Yeah, that's part of the analysis is resisting that impulse. And I yeah. think that in and of itself is sort of an interesting attachment. Like, is it is it us as sort of members of liberal societies that are like have a wounded attachment to a, a playbook? Mm. Or right. like, what does that say? What is our kind of impulse to ask that question sort of reveal about the problem? 
Yeah. And I think that sort of, I, I love that that's how you are thinking about that question, because I think it reveals, at least for me, it's like, as a political theorist, I want these answers. But also as a political theorist, I'm always already resisting these answers, right? <laughs> right. It's right in. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and then that pull works on you in multiple ways. It works on you as sort of like a citizen of the world you're trying to describe, right? You don't want right. to like theorize from a position of somehow, I don't know, that your your own experience of citizenship is like irrelevant or something like that. I mean, some people do, I guess, but <laughs> uh, not the kinds of political theory that any of us do. Right. <laughs> right. Or, or at least try to do. Yeah. So I have, I mean, I'm similarly not really going to answer Danielle's important question. Um, there are kind of two things that come to mind, though. One, and so I should give a little more context or the impetus for this episode, is that uh, this semester I chose this book to uh, close my Intro to Political Theory course with. Um, and my students have really gotten a lot out of this book, even though we're in quote-unquote distance learning. Uh, or whatever the hell we're calling it today. <laughs> and um, and so, like, that was kind of the uh, impetus for me suggesting this book. And also, uh, Emily, you alluded to this, that I've, like, had some, granted they were conversations on Moodle, but, like, Moodle conversations with my students about what does Hooker enable us to think about in a current context of COVID-19. And so I think that one of the things that that is important that Hooker is doing um, and this is something that several of my students were pointing out is that like, it's not actually a book about, it kind of a little bit becomes this later on, but it's not primarily a book about, okay, like here are some kind of policy legislative right. institutional right. fixes, right. but she's thinking on a level that is like quasi affective. And yeah. I'm going to leave that hanging because I'm assuming we will get to that at some point <laughs> yeah. and thinking about like ideas about ethics and embodiment to some extent, right? So she's kind of taking us out of like, even kind of mainstream liberal political theory in terms of how do we try to generate a more genuine solidarity? Yeah. And then the second thing that she points out is that one of the aspects of this is what she calls, you know, like making whiteness visible, kind of making the racial polity visible as a racial polity. And here she's drawing on or expanding on the work of Charles Mills and others. And that too strikes me as kind of like a generative sort of political theoretical endeavor insofar as she's also very deeply in conversation with liberal political philosophy, with liberal democratic theory and so on and so forth. Yeah, that's, yeah. John, I think you really um, succinctly summarize some of the main points that Hooker is really getting at. Um, something that I was thinking about and in always already fashion, I want to obviously open it up and hear from all of you is what she calls the ontological dimensions to the mm. problems of racialized solidarity um, and racial seeing. Um, yeah. Like what do we, what does she mean there and what does it open up for us to see the problem of racialized solidarity that she is tracing um, as, as a problem of ontology um, in a certain sense? It's funny that you raised that yeah. question so soon. I should 
like also in true always already fashion my footnotes and that are my notes to myself in that section are littered with like whether or not these are also questions of epistemology and like because right. when she talks <laughs> yeah. about seeing and and yeah. translation that kind of like the processes right. of translation that facilitate um facilitate bonds of solidarity or obligations of solidarity and she also used the example of kind of common space but I take her to be working with a really expansive kind of understanding of space, which I think yeah. might be another way to think about why reading something like this in a time of distance learning is um, generative or or maybe comforting right. in some sense. But that there's like, I wasn't quite convinced that the ontological dimension was like the operative one. And I'm not, I'm right. not sure that like, that that's the best reading of it either or and i'm not saying necessarily that that's what you were saying but i i think it's like the fact that it plays out on all these different levels is kind of an interesting dynamic of what she's trying to elucidate for us well yeah and also um so both on the this idea that her conception of space has room for so many different kinds of space i think also takes on a, a whole other set of meanings or significances as we think about what space is like for us today in this like extra distance mode of everything. Right. Um, but I think to go back to the question of the, of the ontological dimension of racialized seeing for me, this was one of the parts of Hooker that I, that was that the first time I read this book felt really helpful because it was before I had engaged in a lot of this literature. And this time it felt really important to what she's developing, but I'm not entirely sure how it fits with um, sort of the engagement with like the multiculturalism literature and the sort of general critique of liberalism. Like that was, that was where it, it started to get tough for me. Right. That's a good point, Danielle, because it, it crystallizes something for me actually. And that I just kind of like assigned that into the category of, well, that's part of the critique of liberal political philosophy mm -hmm. or theories of multiculturalism. Is that they don't that... take like ontological, the ontological dimension of democratic problems seriously or something like that? Precisely. But that's mm -hmm. not actually like her direct critique of liberal theories of multiculturalism right. or even communitarian theories of multiculturalism right. or quasi-communitarian theories of multiculturalism. Yeah. Right. right. She's doing more sort of like conceptual gaps there rather than kind of ones that are missing out on a particular account of the world or of experience. Is that what you mean? Yeah. 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 That's part of it for sure. Yeah. Sorry. That was a question, but I didn't end with a question mark. <laughs> question well, mark. It was also, it was also just right. So I was willing to just like, let, let it go. Let it keep going. <laughs> I was like, wait, let me make sure we're on the same page here. <laughs> yeah. But I mean like fundamentally, right? Like this idea that, um, in order to be concerned with the pain and suffering of those who do not look like you for, for white people, right. Then white people have to be aware that 
pain and suffering is happening and that there is this obstacle. And like, to me, that makes sense that if you can't see the pain and suffering and if you've been trained sort of through the various structures and, and institutions in society, right, not to see a certain type or set of pain and suffering, then you couldn't possibly try to uh, solve those, solve the underlying causes of that. Like that makes sense to me, but like then the jump to like multiculturalism and, and different gaps within that literature, like that does not make sense. Right. I, I, I wonder if like going off with all of, all of us have been talking about that. It seems like, her recourse to social ontology, epistemology, um, really racial scene, seems like more of her own theoretical scaffolding that she's building up, drawing on, um, I guess, largely dissident traditions within philosophy writ large. So she talks yeah. about like African-American philosophy. She's also drawing on the work of like our Linda Alcoff from the grad center. Um, that are really concerned with sort of shifting the terrain of how we conceptualize the social and political world, um, I guess, at a metaphysical level in, in, in some ways. And so it seems like she, she wants to start from there, but then I'm with you on like, how does that then fit into, or, or what would it look like to bring that directly to bear on the literature yeah. on multiculturalism, which already works yes. from a different set of metaphysical foundations in yeah. its understanding of the world, right? Yeah, no, that is really well said. That's, that's precisely sort of where this question is coming from for me. I wonder too whether that's not related to the sort of overarching problem of theorizing about liberal societies within the confines of liberal yeah. thought. Because right. I'm, I'm thinking now that like maybe insisting on the ontological dimension to the problem of racialized solidarity in the context of debates around multiculturalism isn't just an exercise for the purpose of kind of highlighting some dimensions of liberal thought that are inadequate, right. but it's because liberal societies have debates around multiculturalism that the multicultural, that like how, what we understand multiculturalism to be is important for telling the story of liberal societies, even if you're trying to critique liberal thought. Right. Does, that, does that make sense? That was a lot of closet. No, it does. <laughs> no, that does make a lot of sense. It does. <sighs> yeah. Yet, yet, yes. a, yet, sorry, John, go ahead. No, go ahead, Sid. Oh, I was saying, yet at the same time, even though it seems like drawing on people like Mills and Alcoff, that she's sort of trying to shift the terms of the debate, um, towards something more expansive towards say taking like a social ontology of race seriously in her understanding of uh liberal society it still seems um like the paradox that we've been talking about or the tensions between this and her critique of multiculturalism and here emily i wanted to ask you if you could like elaborate a bit more on this reproduction of the logic of liberalism that we were talking about because it seems like in spite of this more expansive, capacious understanding of the social world, there still seems to be certain elements of liberalism that are either smuggled in or still somehow uh, conditioning and contouring um, 
this this social ontology even uh, yeah. if that makes sense i think for me there's an interesting way in which liberal thinkers collapse the social historical fact of liberalism and liberal ideals and so when oh. when theorists are trying to be critical of liberal thought by way of reference to historical liberal practice i think that it's hard to get out of the conflation that the original liberal theorists make between those two phenomena. So even when you are, but I don't know what, where that difficulty comes from. I don't know if it's just the like portention to universality that liberalism entails. And so to criticize it, you're still kind of working within its logics or it still sort of permeates the, the discourse, even if you're trying to pay attention to specificity and historical context. Or whether it's just like when you deal with the categories of it, that like the categories themselves kind of carry that self-referential thing within it. And also, I'm not even sure those are two distinct dimensions of of liberal thought. Now that I'm saying it out loud, but I think that I think that there's something really difficult in doing that work without engaging in that reproduction and I don't know where the difficulty lies and I'm also not quite sure what it is exactly that's being reproduced aside from some sort of vague sense that like we can't get out of liberal logic altogether. <laughs> well and I wonder if part of that is is the sort of like um, uh, either the the timelessness or the future-oriented mm. aspect of liberalism as a form of this abstract theorizing, right? Like that there is a way in which it is, it is, I think there's a way to read liberal theory as like hopeful in some sense. And, and I wonder if part of the reproduction is trying to, to capture that hopefulness, you sort of, get sucked back into these different categories mm. that themselves are sort of the the like reproducing that hopefulness oh yeah the sort of impetus to like make it work somehow yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. like wouldn't it like wouldn't it be great if we we had like equality uh liberty fraternity right like going mm -hmm. back to the she comes back to those those ideals quite a few times like wouldn't it be great if we had those except that of like and this is i think emily part of where where you're coming from well if we like pay attention to the social and historical facts of liberal societies it is clear to to us that we we have never and perhaps will never have them right that these are, are unrealizable kind of concepts on yeah, their own exactly. that but that maybe if we adjust them or fill them out differently or ground them in their histories, then we can yeah. realize them. So there's still the, the goal is still kind of realizability or of something that draws on liberal, a liberal impetus. That's a really good way of framing it. And there's an additional layer of tension to that, Danielle, in the sense that what hookers in some ways trying to do is ask liberal societies, granted, we have the caveat of Emily's critique, um, ask liberal societies to understand the racialized nature of liberalism so as right. to be better liberals. liberals or something yeah. Right. Like that. Right. And mm -hmm. so, but like, and, and this seeks even, I think some of the broader issues that we've been talking about for the last 10 minutes, it's a question of like, how much of the, this kind of a sustained engagement with liberalism on hookers part 
is in, is to some extent a kind of strategic sort of move because if it's something that is like just trashing liberalism, Rawlsians or Will Kimlicka or whoever, like, I'm just not going to read it. Right. Whereas maybe they read her work. Maybe they read this book. I don't know. So I'd like, that's part of the question. But then that the deeper level of that, and this goes back to the ontology sort of conversation, is the question of whether or not, you know, so so is whether or not kind of the social ontology of liberalism is incompatible with the with the ontological view of race that Hooker is offering us in the introduction and in chapter one to some extent. Which is obviously mm-hmm. like she's yeah, not the right. only person to engage in that debate. Like yeah. she draws heavily on Charles Mills, and of course that becomes one of like the key issues in the uh, collection of Mills's essays on liberalism. Is like is the sort of social ontology of liberalism inherently or uh, inevitably going to prevent some sort of racially just future? Right. Mills's answer is no. Interestingly enough, and. Uh, I'll plug the interview we did right. with him several years ago to learn more about that. Oh, you're and so then, good the, at that. The last, <laughs> then the last point I'll make is the one I've been kind of racking my brain since I feel which one of you asked this question, maybe like 10 or 15 minutes ago. Like, how is the, how is the, the ontological point connected to the, the uh, multiculturalism debate? Yeah. And there's one answer that I could come up with. And it's that, liberal multiculturalism and Hooker's readings, right? So there's like Rawls-Dworkin kind of theory is the separation she makes from people like mm-hmm. Kimlicka and Taylor and Sandow. Right. She's focusing mostly on Rawls and Dworkin, on the one hand, Kimlicka on the other. Both of them, both strands, she argues, or both trajectories, make this separation, kind of analytical separation between race and ethnicity mm-hmm. when... Hooker argues that in an embodied and ontological way and in how white people respond to people of color, Mm. those categories, that distinction, that analytical distinction doesn't quite hold up. I don't know where that gets us, but that's like the one example I could come up with. Hmm. But they don't hold up as analytical distinctions within the confines of liberal thought or liberal practice, right? Like, But I think that that's part of the reason why they get mobilized in practice is because of the kind of like epistemology of ignorance whiteness problem, which is that like Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. majority, you know, white power holders have vested interest in, in an analytical distinction between race and ethnicity that allows for racial hierarchies to be maintained in effect, even if they're dismissed in lip service or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah well yeah sorry oh no no go ahead oh no um I, I was just gonna say that reading a lot a lot of this and the racial seeing and the sort of parallax vision that arises out of racialized solidarity where whites see a particular way and then people of color or different different folks see something else um it just kept taking me back to white ignorance so does she cite it because i didn't look at the citations at the back but but yeah, it kept like like this. Yeah, these epistemologies of ignorance that sort of produce this um, double vision in a certain sense for certain members of the polity versus others. Um, yeah, that was just a 
Well, and I wonder, so just on that note, I don't know if she cites it, but like one thing that I sort of kept coming, I kept coming back to is that this is the book that is based on her dissertation. Her dissertation was defended in 2002, right? The book comes out in 2009. And so I think like between 2009 and today, right, there's been so much work on the, on this set of ideas racialized seeing um sort of the the work that whiteness is doing not that there wasn't before she's clearly drawing on on a lot of um a lot of great scholarship from earlier but this feels like something that people are so engaged in 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 this moment and Mm -hmm. so it's sort of interesting to read a a take that attempts to theorize sort of through multiculturalism which I don't know about you guys, but for me, it, that feels like it's fallen away a bit. Mm-hmm. Right. Because, I right. mean, if anyone's going to engage Kimlika today, it's like zoopolis and animal rights. Yeah. Right. Mm. Or like or types, of, types of right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was just looking up what year the Race and Epistemologies of Ignorance volume that um, both Mills and... Alcoff have a chapter in came out and that was in 2007. So yeah, like around, right around the same time. So, I mean, maybe a a somewhat related question then is does, does how we think about this work change when we think about it as a work of democratic theory or intervening in democratic theory, which is a slightly different way I think of considering it compared to thinking of it as part of like, liberal, communitarian, multicultural debates? Well, yeah, I like that question. And I think that, I think the answer, for me, at least the answer to that is yes. Um, And part of it is because, I mean, one thing that this book does so well is she's so good at defining things, right? Um, Right. And her definitions are super clear. I don't necessarily agree with all of them, but they're so clear and, and they, they, it does a lot of work in terms of setup. But right. the thing that I keep coming back to is, or the the question that she introduces early on is that solidarity, like what's the relationship between solidarity and democracy, right? Which I take mm-hmm. to be like one of these fundamental questions for her. And solidarity is, is clearly this key thing. And so that is part of why, uh, she goes on the the journey of this book is trying to to parse that and and think about its relationship and so I do think that this work I think that this work has a lot of value for democratic theory because at least for me solidarity is this key piece <laughs> like you know I think about politics as I sort of take this from a rent like action and concert right and so that question of well how do we how do we get the concert? How do we come together and act together? What kinds of relationships do we have to have or do we have to build? And so solidarity is like a big answer for me there. Maybe thinking about it also as a work of democratic theory rather than as an exercise in sort of liberal thought is also another way to make sense of the critique of liberalism, right? If we want to hold on Mm. to a an account of democracy that relies on something that we get a kind of uh, impoverished account of in the liberal paradigm, 
then like we have to point out all the ways in which it's impoverished and what the sort of effects for democracy are of that those conceptions and their limits and then we can sort of dispense with those altogether and sort of reframe democratic practice in the language of this more expansive notion of solidarity rather than in the kind of abstract language of of liberalism yeah i think that i i like that i think that that that's right and thinking about well, I think thinking about the effects for democracy as opposed to how it fits into the liberal paradigm, at least for us, is a way to move it away from the sort of abstract theorizing and into the realm of practice, which I think is what Hooker is also trying to do, right? Mm -hmm. Trying to make that shift. Maybe, so I'm wondering now that we've talked about kind of whether or not sort of first the opening question, which is like, what is it (laughs) how how do we get it and then this sort of struggle with liberal thought and like whether or not that's a symptom of of kind of a politics of hope or something the hope for the promise of liberalism to be realized outside of its uh uh outside of its historical sort of violences um i wonder whether like we whether we think the book is super hopeful about the promise of solidarity at all even or like what what do we get what picture of like how much we can hope for it emerges from the argument as a whole does that make sense as a question yeah i think yeah. i i think it makes sense as a question i also think related to that question just to tack on yeah. as as one does um related to that question is also the like sort of bigger political theory question question of like what's the relationship between theory and practice here mm-hmm. softball questions all <laughs> so many softball questions <laughs> so good at them i always think about i don't know if it's a subtitle or a title but like some wendy brown essay from the early aughts around human rights discourse and she has a line that is like is this the best we can hope for and i i'm (laughs) i'm like wondering whether yes like whether the promise of solidarity is actually like not we want it to do more work than it can and whether like whether like the project of getting white societies to recognize their their ways in which they're racialized and violently so is like how are we looking at that task and is how are we glossing that task (laughs) what ethics are we bringing to (laughs) to bear on it so just like sort of on that that on on the let's say the the weightiness of that task (laughs) somewhere around page 14 hooker sort of poses the question of how would how would the socio-political world have to be reconceptualized in order for black and other subordinated racialized groups to be able to become members of the polity on terms of equality reciprocity and mutual respect and i feel like that question like how would we have to reconceptualize the world (laughs) it's like that's the question that we are sort of 
baking into the notion of solidarity or or that that she's baking into the notion of solidarity i think right it makes the task seem way more gargantuan when you look at it that way (laughs) right like oh like if what's required to truly realize equality or something is like a complete re-envisioning of the entire social political world then it's like oh (laughs) is that all (laughs) okay so casual yeah yeah it it yeah absolutely it sort of got me and she seems like really aware of this right so i think somewhere on page 50 where she talks about like this chicken and egg game if like the racial polity Mm -hmm. structurally produces white ignorance or what have you right this um this double site where white citizens see or have a particular ethical political historical perspective on things while people of color have this other understanding of um, history and inequality, for instance. Um, If it's the racial polity that produces that, then would it require to get over this racialized solidarity? Would would, Would that necessitate dismantling the racial polity first? Or is it impossible to dismantle the racial polity till you actually overcome racialized solidarity? And so she seems like, aware of this tension right between what 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 do we do like it almost seems like a catch-22 the way she at least sets it up um by sort of baking in this racialized solidarity into solidarity um i I think i wonder though whether or not the kind of insistence on not mere but on the kind of initial project of or prospect for recognizing the the racialized yeah. the ways in which social and political relationships are racialized it is not itself like kind of enough right that you don't have to mm-hmm. uh, you don't have to aim all the way for restructuring for for undoing that racialization before we can have equality it's like kind of enough to recognize it or to like to grapple with that reality Right. I I guess this this is a this is a bigger question and I'm just going to throw it out there. And it's sort of basic, but what does she, how does she understand racial justice and racial equality? Like what does that like I'm she's really good as Danielle pointed out at really being clear and laying out how she understands different concepts and really defining key terms, but I was sort of like mm-hmm. I don't know, I could Maybe it comes later on or what What does it mean? Because I guess, and I'll just be clear about where I'm coming from. Yeah. I'm wondering about class and capitalism yeah. and the intersections between race, gender, capitalism. We're really like the literature on racial capitalism right now, for instance, right? And where solidarity fits in with that. Um, I had a class note, yeah. class question mark yeah. note in a couple <laughs> margins. Yeah, and I think it's 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 just something that made me think. Like, what is what is the horizon or vision of racial equality, racial justice that Hooker is working with here, um, and where does where does class or capitalism fit in? Because at least in the work of someone like Mills, while he's really clear that, for instance, the racial contract, um, one of its foundational features, why it exists, is because of racial exploitation or the need to exploit particular bodies and take their resources. And he's clear about that. 
but then he sort of always under theorizes how capitalism fits into um, the racial contract, for instance. Yeah, I don't know. Do we get any of that later in the book for those of you who've read the whole thing? Yeah, so I think that Hooker's understanding of sort of that more expansive understanding of space or the the fact that she has that qualifier as, uh, you know, racial minorities and other subordinated groups or other marginalized groups. I think that we can we can read that as a space to bring class in, but I don't feel like it's definitely not her sort of her main analytic category. Right, right. Which is just fine, of course. <laughs> well, I guess the question is to do the like, you know, feminist political theorist move is like, if, if you, if you it, it, approach the argument from the lens of class or with the perspective of trying to say something meaningful about economic exploitation, like, does any of the rest of it fall out? <laughs> or like, can it, does it yeah. still hold? It's right. like the... Right. And yeah, and I guess I'm just looking over her, the four key components of political solidarity. Yeah. And to me, I do definitely see class as something that, as Danielle, you pointed out, that is definitely a part of that, right? So like, yeah. or it, it should be a part of it. Um, like having an important affective dimension, but also an ethical orientation, multiple and over overlapping, the product of structural conditions. Right that require people to develop contingent solidarities. And then about how racialized solidarity sort of um, has been an impediment. And I think these are questions that could also apply to at least um, class struggle in, in the American context, for sure, in the United States context, about how the racialized solidarity that she's talking about has sort of interrupted um, class. moments of interracial class solidarity even um, yeah. or come in the way of that um, maybe that would be like a good kind of test case for working out what she's talking about you mean like in the context of does Hooker help us understand through her analysis of solidarity like the, the psychological wages of whiteness yeah oh Okay. I was like that. Exactly what I meant, but you said it way better. <laughs> yeah, that's that's super interesting. Yeah. John, I'm gonna uh, need you to follow me around and reinterpret me. <laughs> well, me see, it's funny you say that because it's been a it's been a long running, um, not bit genuine uh true thing that Emily's one of her many great skills is she understands many people's arguments, including my own, better than we ourselves do. Absolutely. And um, that was, like, very <laughs> crucial at a couple of key points in dissertation and job market preps and everything. So I'm eternally grateful to Emily for precisely that. John, it's well, funny that you're saying that about someone else because I, that's how I feel about you. <laughs> well, I think that means we're forming a good solidaristic friendship <laughs> exactly. amongst ourselves. Yeah. Where's the part about solidarity where you just build each other up and burn yeah. you know? <laughs> where you realize that it's not you but you're still happy about it yeah <laughs> <laughs> wow. oh man so so there so i kind of have two questions on my mind these both kind of refer to Wait, things. but you didn't respond um, to the racial capitalism charge 
Um, I don't, I don't need to. I think Danielle and Sid and Emily, you all. Like, Fine. I mean, no, it's, I mean, only like I would, I would just make the observation that solidarity is an interesting term to use in the context of political theory and the way that Hooker is doing political theory as a term that like in common usage is associated with like working class union politics yeah. right. Um, right. and or with Marxism. Right. Mm -hmm. But then it takes on, I think, a very different meaning, although not a totally like a distinct or opposite meaning, just a very, very different meaning, I think. in, in this book. Well, right. I think that's one of the interesting things about her kind of a, in the moments where she's sort of looking back at the canon, like of Western thought in general, but also of liberal thought in particular, that like, I wonder whether she's not pulling disparate things out and sort of grouping them under the rubric of solidarity, like for the purpose maybe of kind of drawing on that more left tradition or like the impulse of critique right. of the left tradition to bring to bear on the kind of liberal tradition. Right. right? Cause like, I don't necessarily think about, you know, the way social contract theorists or natural law theorists theorize consent as an express theorization of solidarity, even though like some right. kind of solidarity in the type that she's, talking about is obviously required but it's sort of presumed not elaborated and so it took like name that solidarity is i think potentially maybe like a, a strategic move right. i that yeah. is an excellent point so sorry sid go ahead oh no i was yeah i i think emily what you were saying is is spot on and i guess just just to build a bit more in in terms of what i was thinking while reading this um like i I like her epistemologies of ignorance sort of argument about this parallel vision um, between people of color on the one hand and white folks on the other. But I'm wondering the ways in which um, in, intra-racial class differentiation sort of troubles that. So I guess I'm wondering mm -hmm. about how black elites and I don't know, for lack of better word, like the professional managerial class, um, people like the Obamas and like Kamala Harris and I don't know, black capitalism, like really strong ardent supporters of black entrepreneurship, et cetera, et cetera, how they sort of coalesce more um, with the white worldview in a certain sense than with whatever, a focus on more radical forms of racial justice, for instance, or calls for, um, I don't know, restructuring um, capitalism, redistributing, redistributing poverty, things yeah. like that. Yeah, like really, I guess, really attacking private property as this sort of sedimented um, key pivot of both liberal theory and practice um, in a certain sense. Well, I, I don't... I love that question. I don't have a fully formed answer to it, but the thing that jumps to mind, um, sort of thinking about black elites coalescing with the white worldview as opposed to more radical forms of racial justice, the first text that jumps into my head is is uh, Joel Olson's. Right. Right. Like, and right. it, um, and the name of the text is escaping me. Abolition of white democracy. That... Yes. Yes. Thank yes. you. Right. Yes. And and so part of it, part of the argument in that book, right, is that 
it, this idea of whiteness is is linked to those sort of liberal ideals that we were talking about earlier. Right. And and there is a certain like status or stature that is sort of assigned to whiteness, which is part of what like produces that fissure between in groups that should have sort of similar class interests, right? right. Between black and white. And so right. I wonder if that's part of what's what's at work here too. Yeah. And I was I was uh while reading, I was looking at some of her later work and she explicitly draws on Olson's work. Yeah. Um, like in her BLM essay, for yeah. instance. In the uh, in the South Atlantic Quarterly piece. Uh that one, but also her political theory essay. Um, okay. on I think democratic sacrifice and repair. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So she's clearly like st like still thinking about a lot of these ideas, but it seems totally. like totally it has evolved past the sort of earlier questions that we had with regard to multiculturalism. Right. I mean, yes. And so I, mean, I think one of like my follow-up questions then has to do with the relationship of, on the one hand, solidarity to, and this is re-asking a question that Emily raised before we started recording, like this kind of, assumption is maybe not the right word, but like presumption that uh that like solidarity in a more genuine way would generate political trust which would generate some sort of sense of political obligation even to distant others or to strangers or to whichever kind of category we wanted to use and then on the third hand there's also this <laughs> both semi connection to the idea of friendship as a democratic practice as in daniel allen's work that hooker is working mm -hmm. with that is related to but uh, but not solidarity right so that's like more just like here are some terms does anybody any of the any of the three of you want to talk talk about them <laughs> i'm sorry i laughed in the middle i love 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 when hands in uh, <laughs> as an explanatory device become like multiplicity of hands it's like yes. one of my favorite things <laughs> <laughs> but the, i only i only wish my students found it amusing um, because they don't <laughs> isn't it weird the things that you make yourself giggle about that get absolutely no reaction <laughs> from a class of undergrads <laughs> oh. yep so many you mean things. everything no yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um I mean, I want to take the bait and talk about friendship and, and solidarity. And I want to think about how those things are, are different, um, especially because, mm -hmm. you know, to go back to those four aspects that she lays out, right, the affective dimension with an ethical orientation that moves us to action, that it, solidarity is multiple and overlapping, it's a product of structural conditions, and is fundamentally shaped by race. Mm-hmm. Those descriptors seem to also apply to friendship. Mm. So, so sort of to go, to go back to my that first question, like how do we get solidarity? But also implicit in that question is like, what is solidarity? Yeah. Right. And, and, what and is how is well, yeah, and how is how is solidarity different than friendship? That's a, that's interesting, Danielle, because I would say one of the distinctions is I don't know. I I wanted to say I don't 
think that solidarity is, or I don't think that friendship is like a product of structural conditions that create kind of contingent linked fates well, in the way that Hooker does in chapter two. And then I'm like, but well, isn't it? you know, like, it's like also structural conditions right. in a way that like yeah. brought me to the grad right. center mm-hmm. to do a PhD in political theory to meet uh, to meet you. Emily yeah. and to meet Sid and then yeah. right. and then Danielle for us to end up being at conferences together through all these structural right. conditions. Yeah. So so I, I, I so I partially take back that that to me is one of the distinctions. Well, and that was also the one that I was like, is this friendship? But then she's drawing on Alan, who her notion of friendship is sort of developed out through Aristotle. And like thinking about what friendship, what role friendship does and sort of how it's produced for Aristotle, it is certainly a product of like being in the same spaces with others, right? Proximity is a really important thing for Aristotle. And so if we like expand the idea of proximity to think about our position within these broader structures, I think that 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 holds for for friendship and for solidarity. Yeah, I was also going to say, like, I think one of the ways in which at least Hooker's discussion of Daniel Allen kind of tries to parse out friendship and solidarity as different is that like solidarity has this explicitly kind of political right. has politicalness to it. But now I'm like, well, doesn't friendship and right. <laughs> also like I, right. I'm increasingly convinced that there is no, that the boundary between the two is porous. <laughs> I, I guess I was the way I've been, thinking about it in terms of Venn diagrams, if I may, is that yeah. solidarity... Says that always already podcast first. We've got to dive I'm very is, excited. Is that friendship might be a subset of solidarity? Like, friendship might be a small circle within the larger circle of solidarity? And I guess I'm thinking about what she says on page 29, um, where she said... Um, where she says that it is perfectly consistent to claim that political solidarity has an affective dimension, but nevertheless does not require close bonds of affection or even liking. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, wait. So to do it as a logic game, like all friendships are relationships of solidarity, but not all relationships of solidarity are friendship. Right. I I would accept. Yeah. That. Yeah. I, right. Yeah. yeah. Because, because, I mean, like, to be in solidarity with, say, someone who's a victim of, I don't know, to, for me, to be in solidarity with victims of um, lynching in India, for instance, or their families, like, I don't have to know these people, right? Um, whereas for me to be friends with someone that's experienced this horrible bout of racial and religious violence, um, right? Like, I would have, like, there has to be some closeness um, involved or communication yeah. even, but you can be in solidarity with people who you don't even know, right? I wonder if that's the sort of like philosophical origin of the comrade Hale. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. And like she says on 30 also that like, I guess what separates friendship from solidarity is that solidarity has that added normative orientation towards ethical action, right? Um, so it's not just fellow feeling, but it's also this extra, whatever, added dimension that we should act, whether we actually know this person or even like the person. Like in my grad program, there are totally people that I don't have, that I don't care about, but I would fight with them along with them against the administration, for instance. Yeah. Like I would still be in solidarity with them for our structural conditions. 
whether I whether they're my friends or not. No, that's really helpful. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know where that. Uh... <laughs> well, okay, so I, then I, I think that that's a helpful point because, and this links back even to the discussion of ontology earlier, but in some ways more epistemology, as Emily points out. Because um, one of the ways she describes solidarity, and I believe this is the these are the final words of the book, if I remember correctly, is this notion where she's drawing from Fanon on seeing through the eyes of, mm. of the other and recognizing them as an other, but nonetheless being able to see through their eyes. Huh. That reminds me of my favorite Haraway quote when in that really old piece from like 88 on, uh, oh my God, the titles escape me at the moment. The one about science, feminism, feminism and science. Anyway, she says, that the requirement is to ask with whose blood were my eyes crafted. Uh, mm. I love that. Mm. Yeah. It's dark and delicious. Well, so, so yeah. I know that this takes us back a little bit, but like that, this idea that the task of solidarity is not to see the other as myself, but to see through, uh, see the other through his own eyes, right? That, that piece that she's taking from Fanon. Maybe this is, maybe this is like a terrible question, but why do we need multiculturalism <laughs> to answer that question? Mm. You mean like beside the fact that it's a conversation that policymakers are having? Well, I guess, well, uh, that does seem to be an answer that it's a conversation that policymakers are having. I guess I like, I'm just the disconnect between the sort of abstract theory and practice just all crashes into itself for me once we get back to talking about solidarity. Oh, oh interesting. Mm -hmm. Like a book about political solidarity is not a device for creating solidarity, to put it very yeah, broadly, yes. that kind of the idea. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. That exploded my brain. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess like I wish different... you could see my face right now. <laughs> I guess a different way to like say that is I think that this book poses a lot of really important questions and also offers some conceptual tools to think through those questions, but I don't necessarily think that the book itself thinks through the questions in the way that I want it to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm going to dissent from my own way of putting it a couple of minutes ago. So I'm thinking like to the conversations again on Moodle that I've had with my students about this mm -hmm. book. And maybe they're just saying this to make me feel better about everything. <laughs> but I would say that like seemingly this book, reading this book, has caused some of my white students to rethink the way they understand their political and ethical connection to people of color. I don't know if that's necessarily solidarity generating, right? but I do think it's caused them to do a tiny bit, at least, of that uh, you know, questioning of one's kind of ethical, political perspective or orientation towards history or something like that in a very optimistic reading of one of the things that has gone on in my class. So 
again, like that's still several degrees removed from the kind of political solidarity that Hooker is ultimately talking about. So it's not like to say that, you know, this point is wrong or anything, but like that is, you know, that is, that is a place where something uh, like that is half or a quarter of a step in that direction might happen. I think the example of a kind of undergraduate classroom too is interesting because there's like potentially other solidarity generating conditions that create that as a community within which to read a book like this to begin with. And so like, it might be different for a bunch of, you know, people who are all like in a classroom for relatively similar reasons to be reading a book together and then to reflect on like how that book, um, you know, constitutes them as a class or as a community talking about a book, but also as citizens right. in like the broader world with, of which the book is trying to explain and that like, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with that. No, that's great. Yeah. Um, and thank you for giving me something to bring into my, I'm going to teach this again in intro next semester. Uh, and thank you for adding to the things I can talk about that like, actually a classroom is not a bad way to go through and try to explain like, her distinctions and debates that she's trying to walk through in chapter one about what solid is, what solidarity is, because there are like elements perhaps of fellow feeling in right. the classroom, mm -hmm. but also elements of structural conditions that are fairly contingent bring you to this one space. Right. So there's this also like the space aspect of it. And um, there are hurdles so, yeah, to so, it that are, are products of kind mm -hmm. of the, in, you know, institutional structures and logics and bureaucracy yeah, and all these things and like working against the you know like what is a liberal arts education for when i buy mm -hmm. it I, you, my scare quotes are abounding here but like <laughs> all over the place i i find that the classroom is such a useful model for working out so many <laughs> different political concerns and concepts because just i mean but again this brings me back to the kind of like self-referential liberal thing because it's like yeah. because the classroom yeah. is a historical social product of like a, a particular arrangement of the social world and of the means of production and all of these things and like how we mm -hmm. learn about power and how we learn about authority when we start from you know age whatever in right. kindergarten it's like it's it's both a kind of like microcosm of the political world and a really good example for talking through <laughs> all of those dynamics of like how we become political entities without even knowing it or realizing it. Yeah. Or, or taking an active role in it. Yeah. Mm. I think it's so funny to hear like, oh, I don't really care about politics or know about politics or follow politics. And it's like your right. whole life. Yeah. <laughs> is politics, bro. Well, and I, also, um, I feel like that is precisely the um, the like plight of the political theorist, right? It's like yeah. it's all politics. What do you mean you're just thinking about voting? Everything is politics. Everything is politics. Like, why do you sit down in voting? that? Yeah. No. Why do you sit down in that desk and look up at me and stop talking at the at five ten p.m.? Why? Yeah. That's politics, my friend. Yeah. Or why do some of the bodies in your classroom not stop talking at 5 p.m.? <laughs> when, the, when they would stop talking at 5 p.m., at 5, 10 p.m. if I was at the front of the yeah, classroom. Yeah. Right? Oh, man. It's so interesting. Yeah. That was a little bit of a 
sidetrack. Sorry. I loved it. That's okay. That's okay. The always already podcast listener audience knows what they're they in for. They know what they're in for. Yeah, I've also been thinking about kind of linking back to some earlier sort of passing comments we made about thinking about solidarity in a time of social distance. Mm-hmm. I think that like what the classroom is, is I've been thinking about that a lot lately and like how yeah. different the dynamic is in distance learning models, but also like that I'm, I'm sensing a kind of like yearning for yeah. a, a former solidarity that we didn't know was there, but now we're missing or something. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I don't know. No, I think yep. that that's, ex- that's very spot on every conversation. I try to check in with all my students like once a week and every time most of them are like, I just miss being in the classroom. You know, and the ones when the ones who say it are the ones who you, I was pretty sure, like, could not care less about being in the classroom. I think that's precisely the like missing something they didn't even know they had. And that was like helping them function. Yeah, I did a check in Google Forms with a class last night that people have had all kinds of horrible things going on. And uh, the first one was like, do you want to keep meeting? And nobody said no. Yeah. I was like, yeah really no one not a single i mean a couple people in the other option said i have some things that come up from time and again but like when i can make it i've liked that it's there yeah weird <laughs> weird weird but now i'm thinking about how all of this is like a I don't know if it's like a test case and kind of how we think about solidarity or whether it's like, whether these new conditions are sort of testing the limits of like our, the ways we've previously conceived of it. Right. And I think that Hooker's notion of space in this kind of capacious yeah. sense is a really useful way to think about how you can still have it in these distance times. Right. I mean, and I've been seeing this in the right. kind of, you know, Jacobini left commentaries of like the current economic situation. There's like a concern, right. About like, how do you do class struggle when you can't, or how do you leverage labor power or collective power when you can't be in space together collectively? It's like, yeah. Or what does your labor power mean in a, in the age of online teaching? Right. Like, when intellectual property comes in in this like really different and perhaps predatory um, manner. Easy questions today. (laughs) Oh, oh, that's why you guys invited me on, right? Easy questions. Setting them up, (laughs) locking them out. (laughs) Is that a sports metaphor? No, it's a, that's a bowling. It's a bowling. Oh yeah, bowling. Oh. Sorry. Well, that, that that now there's a hard question: Is bowling a is sport? bowling a sport? Yes. Uh, my mom watches it on the Olympic Channel, so it is a sport. It is a sport. Wow. All right. The Hanley family is really suffering from not, from baseball not happening right now. John, You're, you you got the wrong. I know, I know. <laughs> but bowling is a sport. They play they play bowling on the Olympic Channel. Okay, so I'll, I'll accept that argument. Um, I just looked over at my bookshelf and I saw my copy of White Fragility over there, mm-hmm. and I'm wondering, yeah, what you how you guys think that account of kind of like impediment to racial justice works with one like Hooker's. 
give Danielle and I a couple of months to work <laughs> on our paper that on is it? going to be about this. Oh. Um, no, yeah. So, yeah, Danielle and I are planning on writing something about, um, what, what did we call it, Danielle? <laughs> Guns, affect, and white solidarity. Yeah, exactly. Which oh, is nice. also very relevant in a time of COVID. COVID. Oh, yeah. Liberate Minnesota right. protests. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. and, and like, Sid, back to your question about sort of like race and class, right? Which is if, if a lot of these protest groups are astroturfed, it sort right. of raises that question in a different way. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I guess something I was also thinking about is this thing that she, returns to towards the end of chapter one um, where she talks about making whiteness visible um, Uh to whites. Um, So she says something about one way to confront this problem of racialized solidarity is to directly attempt to make um, the racial polity visible. um, Right. And, and it seems like that at least in terms of its effects of trying to make race visible or racial domination visible goes in like two ways, right? And I think, John, um, your work on All Lives Matter, for instance, is really interesting here uh, um, because I'm- That's a bit, Calling it my work is very generous when I'm like, <laughs> there's some conference papers, they don't fit together. I don't know what I'm doing and I haven't worked on it in months, but thank you. It is your work. But, it's yeah. definitely your work. Yeah, and it's great. And it's going to be, yeah. Um, but but yeah, to the point of like, say, like she talks about how like the civil rights movement, right, was one one moment of this making visible the racial polity. And then obviously there was like racial backlash to that. But also more recently, if you think of Black Lives Matter or just like Trump and what's happening with COVID, right? Yeah. Um, and it seems like the response to these moments of, racial seeing or making visible whiteness goes into like either having, I mean, it's a bit of both, right? On the one hand, people double down even harder. So you have what people have called white backlash. Um, and then on the other hand, you also are able to make certain, um, I don't know, tactical or strategic changes in the social order um, to a certain extent. But it's like that tension still continues. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. Like you have that does make white sense. armed militias protesting on the one hand, while you also see at the same time that COVID is disproportionately affecting people of color and particularly black and indigenous folks. I think this links back to the epistemologies of ignorance thing yeah. too. Right. I mean, and I think that's, I, my intuition is that Hooker's trying to, draw out a kind of similar dynamic to something like the way that Mills conceptualizes ignorance, right? That like there are, there is ignorance at the level of kind of individually held beliefs, but there are also, there's also kind of ignorances fostered by relational structural dynamics that are different from individually held racist beliefs. And so like what it, makes sense in a way that you would have white protesters um you know contesting the restrictions of their liberty of movement in a context where 
black and brown people are being disproportionately affected by the harm that the restriction of movement is meant to ameliorate. Right. Right. That, that, that those aren't actually right. tensions. Those are constitutive facts of a racial polity that's right. structured by white, right. white supremacy. Right. Right. So this is very speculative and shaky, but, it strikes me then that one of the possible effects of making whiteness visible, as Hooker frames it, is that it forces whites to go from a posture of ignorance to one of disavowal. If we understand oh. those as two different, like politico epistemological, um, like orientations of whiteness, yeah. right? But I mean, my point being that, like, yes, you're, I mean, you just you make the you know the point that you make the the whiteness of or you make the the whiteness of the state visible, you make the racial polity visible, you make whiteness visible, um, doesn't like automatically mean then that solidarity is generated, and that's not what right. Hooker's arguing. Right. Right. She's very clear in right. chapter three. She's like, this would be like a giant contestation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And like, it's not like discourse ethics right. conversations about the past. Like, that's not that. She's very clear right. about that um, in a way that I appreciate very much. Um, but yeah, so I like I wonder. I wonder if that's that's one of the things that the making whiteness visible could do, so that it's, you know solidarity or some more some different or more insofar as solidarity could be quantifiable. Um, sort you know is one possible outgrowth or emergence of the making whiteness visible or making racial polity visible, but so too is a kind of backlash encoded as disavowal, perhaps more so than ignorance. Right. Yeah. Which is also what I think about All Lives Matter. That's right. A story for a different. I story. think that's a really interesting way to frame it as well, because you then kind of what visibilizing whiteness does in a really crude way is it makes visible who the difference, like the sort of demographic, you know, quantitative difference between rather than the qualitative difference between people who hold actively racist white supremacist views and, right. and white people who just perpetuate white supremacy without thinking about that, it ever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which I like is kind of a weird way to think about the work that that does. Right. This is so just. Going off that, and this is not Hooker, um, and Hooker is not doing this or saying this, but I wonder, I always find myself slightly, I don't, suspicious is too strong a word, but slightly uncomfortable sometimes with a focus on making whiteness visible or just talk around whiteness as this yeah. monolithic thing. And it's not just because of its monolithic, de-classed de nature, for instance, but also because it sort of, again, slips into centering white folks and whiteness in a perverse way. And it's also sometimes acting or playing out in this ethical register that's largely individualistic and sort of divorced from, um, or it can be divorced from a more structural understanding of white supremacy, which itself is rooted in and simultaneously conditions, say, like, relations of production, exploitation, expropriation, right? Um, yeah, I don't know. And it, and also, like, I, I find it, like, just lumping all white people together mm. 
not in in a in a in an imprecise way i find can be um politically disabling in certain ways i think mm -hmm. I, i don't know if that makes sense yeah i want to turn that question over to danielle in like the context of affect race and solidarity <laughs> and just leave and just leave it for you <laughs> oh talk about questions that can't be answered <laughs> Oh, I don't, I mean, this is something that I've been thinking about for years now, and I honestly don't yeah. have a good answer. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think there there's a kind of, maybe not a, this is a way it gets formulated maybe in like activism and in general political discourse rather than in political theory, but I think it's a different way of approaching the question of like, where do we locate the onus of responsibility for yeah. ameliorative right. or restorative justice projects and for like accountability in relations of solidarity? Right. Right. I, and I guess like my, my concern with this is more like is making whiteness visible. Like, I feel like the effect of that shouldn't just be um, emotional self-flagellation for right. white folks, for instance, or people yes. who have, whatever privileges, but should be a call to, as Hooker talks about ethical orientation or action, like a call to action where it's like, take your resources and do something with that. Yeah. Even if those resources yeah. are just your bodies, you know? Well, I think this is also where your question about what does she mean by racial justice is really important, right? Like does yeah. racial right. justice, just some abstract, like equal standing, or is it restorative justice? So, Cause like we're taking, right. We need to take history seriously in order to understand or see the polity as racialized. But like, does that also inform our central concept of justice or our ethical orientation mm -hmm. toward the others that we now recognize as um, a broader we or as nodes of solidarity or something? Right. Yeah. Like, is the, is the argument that visibilizing whiteness leads to or makes more palatable a conception of restorative justice as racial justice or is it just that it makes some kind of racial justice more likely or some kind of commitment to it easier right i think i think it's the latter right that it it, it almost seems like maybe this is wrong language, but sort of like a necessary step, but not sufficient. Like it's nowhere close to being sufficient. This yeah. visibling, making visible, making whiteness visible, but it seems like an important elementary thing that needs to happen before, I don't know, larger modes of action or acting in the world in concert with others or yeah. something like that. I think that that's right. I think that that's consistent with how she understands how she understands justice. And I, I guess, right, Emily, to your question, I think that I, I agree with Sid that it's it's the latter of those where it's it's, and perhaps this is just a place where it's not a specific kind of justice, but it's like putting the pieces in place so that uh, perhaps a restorative justice could be is where we're going. Mm -hmm. Does right. that make sense? Or at the yeah. very least, the, inver the inverse of that is true, right? That like 
without this, we can never hope for yeah a, a genuine commitment to restorative justice. Yeah, I I I really appreciate this question because it, I've been sort of playing around with understandings of restorative justice in a different project of mine, and I hadn't been reading Hooker sort of with an eye to what kind of justice because I've like reading it with obsessed with the question of solidarity but I think thinking about what kind of justice racial racialized justice is or could be like is a different way to think about that question mm. and it's 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 productive for me and I think generative and, and sort of in a different from a different angle I have one more question for us to talk about, <laughs> and then maybe we can turn to our special segment. Everybody's favorite. Which we actually have. One or several Everybody's wolves. Favorites. Yes. Not only one or several wolves, but also the return of another favorite segment. Yeah. Um, I love segments. So there's this, there's <laughs> this passage on the bottom of 15, and it's her describing her method. And I was oh. wondering if we like have any yes. quick ideas about this. Um, I love this. My approach to analyzing these questions follows a tradition in political theory that grounds the production of normative theory in the historical interpretation and reinterpretation of actual events, a method employed by Aristotle, Montesquieu, Marx, and Arendt, which is an interesting group of people to put together, I would say, in <laughs> an aside. This mode of political theorizing shies away from the exclusive use of abstract deduction or the exegesis of canonical texts and instead combines these with empiricism and historical contextualization in order to ground the critical enterprise that produces ethical arguments. The goal of such historically grounded theorizing is to provide accounts of the world that are useful for understanding contemporary struggles. And then she goes on um, to uh, engage this quote from Arendt and then ends by talking about um, how for her, what part of what that means is thinking about actually like these multicultural theories of multiculturalism from the US and Canada, but also kind of the one thing that she's doing in this book that I don't think we've discussed very much at all, this kind of turn to Latin America that she makes, right? So in chapter two, there is this um, kind of at the end of the chapter after she has walked through and critiqued this, the multiculturalism debate, she turns to say, if we think about uh, race, ethnicity, indigenous politics, African descended peoples in Latin America, we get a different sort of kind of analytic, a different sort of problem, so on and so forth. And then we don't read chapter four, which is this like very deep, intensive uh, analysis of multicultural policies in Nicaragua. So I'm just thinking like, as a method, how do you kind of judge what she's doing in the Wow. <laughs> All right. Sorry, that maybe that was not a productive question. <laughs> no, I think it, I, I personally think it is a productive question because one of the things I highlighted was, was first that she lays out a method, right? Which mm -hmm. is somewhat unique in terms of political theory text, right? Um, I, also, like, John, I want to probe you on, like, why those authors don't sound right together. Because for me, it's like, oh, that's just a genealogy right there. Um, but to, like, actually answer the question as opposed to just, like, saying nonsense, 
I think that looks <laughs> 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 well, like I could say nonsense for the next six hours. Um, we're 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 deep into the podcast. Like there are not probably as many listeners. This now, is the part so of the recording, yeah, where we talk to the people who are still here. <laughs> we break well, the fourth wall, as it were. <laughs> I feel like we're breaking the fourth wall by me being on this, so I feel very excited about that. Um, I. Yeah, I guess, like, so maybe just to, like, throw those both out there, like, first of all, I I think, like, Aristotle, Marx, Arendt, I don't think I would throw Montesquieu in there, but I understand maybe why she did, um, oh. sort of, like, that, like, thinking about if she's trying to juxtapose her own method to the method, <clears throat> the method that is, like, so often seen in this ideal theorizing, right? The Plato's, the Rawls, all of that. Then like Aristotle, Marx, and Arendt do make sense in that regard. Um, and also just the fact that she has a method. Like right. that's, dif that's different than a lot of political theory texts. I'm thinking too about how like in David Harvey's companion to Marx's capital, he talks about Marx's method as oh. being simultaneously oriented toward, you know, describing the world, right? But also, like, to looking at ways in which sort of concepts have been assumed rather than explained and kind of moving, like dialectically engaging the relationship between material conditions and ideas without presuming a necessary kind of causal relationship between them. Um, but like, like really paying attention to the ways in which they work out or conflicts between and among them work out in practice. And then how that gets explained in, in ideal type theories or in prescriptive, you know, political projects or something like yeah. that. And then like how we solve political problems given the dynamic interaction between, um, you know, theory and praxis for lack of a better <laughs> way of talking about that. And I, I see that, like, I think that's her struggle with the liberal theorists here mm, in yes. a sense. Right. Right. I'm happy to end on a 10 discussion of Hooker on that. <laughs> yeah. I like that. I think. Yeah, that, that was great. I yeah. mean, I think, I think it's like a different, inherently difficult, project for that reason and i think yeah, right. i think like if that is the goal that like she does a really good job of struggling with something that's hard yeah. like methodologically hard yeah. agree right. yeah like full agree struggle the All struggle right. is real looks like <laughs> look wait looks like we found wait for it an overlapping consensus so let us oh man grown 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 oh yeah don't we have to do something with that, with that buzz yeah yes yes with that buzz kill awesome we have we have two of uh, everybody's favorite segments making their return to the always already podcast and as a reminder you can email us uh, material for these segments to always already podcast.gmail.com or dm us on twitter that'll work
Um, so should we do advice or dreams first, friends? Uh, which one's going to be more depressing? Huh. Uh, neither. All right. Well, no, may- maybe the dream one. Let's, Let's do that one first. Do that first. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so it's time for everybody's Get favorite segment, One or Several Wolves. And I forgot to ask this person if I did not ask this person if we could uh, use their name or not. So we'll just call them I. Um, I asks my quote, my dream to analyze what does it mean if one does not dream, end quote. Whoa. 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 <laughs> now it's now one or several or zero question mark. Wolves. One or several or zero. Well, this is really fascinating to me because I'm already like, well, how do you know that you don't dream? Like there's a, there's a question around like memory here and the relationship between the sort of dream world and the waking world and the, like the, I don't know, fabric that connects them or something. Uh, mm-hmm. um, so that would be like one thing to interrogate by the dreamer, you know, like how right. am I so sure? Right. Right, because there is the idea that there's a distinction between not dreaming and dreaming but not remembering. That. Yeah, That's, yeah, right, right. Yeah. Well, I'm like, like, oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, not you. <laughs> oh, no, I was going to shift to, well, what if they actually don't dream? So go ahead and then I'll jump in. No, I love that. What if they don't dream? Well, I was thinking about whether, like, whether the implication of that differentiation as a question is, like, that our dreams may still affect us somehow, even if we're not remembering them or if like that, uh-huh. like that would be, yeah. Why would we care about that distinction is another way of thinking of that. But yes. Okay. So if you're not actually not dreaming. <laughs> yeah. So I like, what does it mean if you don't dream? I feel like it might, it could mean that you're processing all of the things you need to process in waking time. Ooh. Right. Like I'm oftentimes working through the stress that I still feel from the day in my dreams or the stress that I'm anticipating from the, from the the next day. Um, So maybe you're just not, maybe you're actually dealing with that stress, even if it doesn't feel like it in your waking hours. I would like to talk to you if so. Yeah. <laughs> Help me your ways. Yeah. How? How? Yeah. My my thought was going to be somewhat similar to Danielle's in the sense that, like, I would imagine it means one's like one is more deeply connected to their unconscious, unconscious, and unconscious processes than average um and and that but then that took me to the thought of like uh, so for me like when i am in therapy compared to when i'm not in therapy i'm dreaming and or remembering my dreams more when i am in therapy right so like that's how my like amped up processing of emotional and psychic processes functions but maybe there's also the case to be like uh it's possible to have like done you know have done or be doing therapy or something else that like just does a lot of that unconscious processing in the way that danielle hypothesizes well or but you could ask you might ask of the dreamer as well whether there's 
a kind of affective experience of realizing that you're not dreaming and whether that like is the reason to ask whether it's bad that you don't dream because not dreaming is making you feel anxious or like you wake up and you there's no no dream there and you're concerned or worried or or like what's that 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 moment of realization that you didn't dream what's what's the affective experience of that moment and like does that tell us something about what's going on in your unconscious or maybe it's like not hyper processing maybe it's like hyper suppressing or hyper repressing oh yes yeah yeah i would just say that it's probably a good thing given how bad everyone's dreams have been i would point out just um this is this email came to us on March 12th. Oh, so it's oh like early days. Like early, yeah. early COVID. I want to follow up with this person and ask if they're still not dreaming right. in the midst of COVID because my dreams are wild right now. Wild. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they I are. believe this person is a loyal listener. Um, I don't know them personally, but... Um, so maybe they'll respond. But do you feel bonds so of solidarity with them? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> in our absolutely <laughs> friend of the podcast oh wait that designation suddenly has more meaning to it it's like friend friend politically politically salient no. solidaristic it is bonder with the pod it is <laughs> has a nice ring to it <laughs> really rolls off the tongue <laughs> <laughs> that is one that is i guess one of my multiple and overlapping uh community solidaristic bonds for sure with the pod, yeah, with the pod. Um, should we go on to everybody else's favorite segment advice yes 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 I love uh, giving this advice. is a segment called my tumblr friend from canada <laughs> and i'd like to apologize to this person because we're like several months behind in answering this question Oops. Um, so it, this may be totally unhelpful advice at this point, but you know, we can talk about it anyway. So this is from, uh, an undergraduate philosophy student from the Netherlands who otherwise wishes to remain anonymous. Okay. Uh, so the, uh, undergraduate philosophy student from the Netherlands, uh, asks, how do you decide on a topic for your philosophy thesis? Ooh. I should decide on a topic within the upcoming months and that's <laughs> John here, why I'm I apologize to this uh, this person, but uh, back to this person. But I really do not know how to make a decision I can stick with. Ideas for topics come up all the time, but I do not know whether I find them interesting enough to spend a couple of months on it. Writing something of that length it would be great if you could give me some ideas for a method for deciding. So <laughs> I, <laughs> I I love that collective. Brain. I have a, a like a mini. Uh, I have the attempted an answer to this that my dissertation chair sort of this was the advice she gave to me when I was trying to think about the topic for my dissertation, and I had a couple that I was sort of playing around with, and she said that pick something that you can envision yourself getting up every morning and working on, but that you both won't become bored by and also you won't be afraid of. So she in grad school was like, you know, probably like most of our professors, enamored with Nietzsche. But she said to herself, like, like, I can't get up every morning and stare at Friedrich in the face. Like, that was not something she could even conceive of doing. And so what right. I, that was the advice she gave me. So think about 
not just like, what are you going to be excited about, but also like, what is something that you're interested in that you feel like you could get up every morning and, and sort of pick away at to build something more that it won't be too hard and therefore it won't like keep you in bed or keep you afraid of the project. Hmm. I wish I would have had that advice. <laughs> I mean, I wish I would have taken that advice. Well, I have a somewhat more cynical take on this. I think, I think Go for it. I, in my experience and my own personal experience and also anecdotally swapping experiences with friends and solidaristic bonding partners. Um, <laughs> I don't know anyone who didn't get sick of it, their project. Right. Yeah. So I yeah, think likewise. that like obsessing over something that you feel, I mean, obviously you want to be proud of as, pr as proud of your work as you can be. You want to feel as good about it as you can be, but it's like a really, I, your relationship to it is going to change. And like, I think to get hung up on like doing the most important thing or the thing that is most meaningful to you or that you won't get sick of is like a bit of an unrealistic expectation of like how it's going to shake out. Um, but I like the, I, I like the idea that like, you don't want to be scared of it. I think that's really, really right. important. <laughs> yeah. I would second, or maybe it's third at this point, both of what you said, Daniel and Emily, in the sense of like choosing something that you are close to, but not too close to, because that will like that will enable you the distance to perhaps not be afraid of it. And as Danielle's uh, advisor mentioned, or Emily, you know, your recommendation of like you're going to get sick at it at, at one point. Um, you know, I mean, it's like it's trite and a cliche, but true that everybody is thesis or dissertation or whatever is ultimately them working out something about themselves for themselves right. um, in some form. And so I think recognizing that going in means that like, even if you, if you have two topics in mind and like one of them seems closer to you in some way, I don't think that's like an automatic, thus I should choose that one because you'll still be having that like personal solidaristic bond with your topic regardless yeah. and working through uh -huh. some shit with it regardless. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I think be being willing to like accept that a little bit of distance from the topic or like a little bit of uh, like disorientation with the topic may actually be quite um, like psychically or emotionally uh, useful. Uh, supportive or useful um, without compromising any of the like to make a very problematic dichotomy, like intellectual engagement. Yeah. I will say yeah. too, this is like a, just a bit of an anecdote, but I, ended up writing something that I felt really attached to, but what I had to read to make the argument I wanted to make was a little bit like facing Nietzsche every day. Like I, <laughs> so like, huh. just think about what, what you'd have to read to, to do that project as well. That's good advice. Like, <laughs> yes. Good advice. Yeah. I, th oh. I think all of you have captured what needs to be said. And yeah, Emily, I really second that your follow-up point about, Yeah. Just pick something that you know um, that when you wake up and what the texts that you have to read are texts that would interest you. Um, yeah, I some, read so yeah. many books written by climate change deniers to write my dissertation, uh, and it was horrible. <laughs> and then when I finished it, I was like, I don't know what to do with these books. Am I a person who advocates book burning now? It's <laughs> <is> a real <laughs> question I had, with, a real conversation right. I had with myself. So, yeah. 
just think about that. <laughs> yeah. I feel like it's also hard hard to not take something like a thesis or a dissertation too seriously, but as someone in the middle of that process, I just try to remind myself that no, this is just like the first of hopefully more projects that come along in the future. So I just try to take the pressure and tension off trying to produce like my best, I don't know, yeah. work or idea. Like I'm trying to do my best, obviously, and be intellectually rigorous. But at the same time, I'm also trying to whatever. There's a lot of learning and reading and writing to be done um, in the grand scheme of things. So yeah. not to take myself too seriously. Yeah, that's excellent advice. Yeah. Um, there are other projects, you know, like does not have to be your life's work. Or this right, is not the exactly. Only, the only text. I mean, that's something although, my advisor like, always I, said. This is not your life's work. This is your right. first. This is your first. Exactly. And I, that's what I, and I, yeah. and I think back to uh, a course that Sid and Emily and I were all in in grad school where our professor likes to point out like how young Marx was when he oh, wrote God. so many brilliant things. <laughs> and she then like looked at all of us and was like, so what, you know, you... what are y'all doing? Yeah. Um, uh, like I tied my so... shoes this morning and I feel great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I showered. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, so I, I think the I think I would echo what Sid said in terms of like the recognition that this is. And, and just speaking of that class, it wasn't just Marx, but she herself had written some amazing stuff at, I think, age 27 or something. Oh, like yeah, her so first yeah, book. Something like that. Yeah. Crazy. Crazy. I just can't sleep. No. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This has been... What uh, pop culture are you consuming today? <laughs> <laughs> this has been, I think, also probably very therapeutic for yeah. us. I loved yeah. it. It's, this question. Well, yeah. Just like political theory with other people right now feels so nice. So nice. Yes. Yes. I mean, I've definitely been in a mode of like, I can't do critical thinking <laughs> uh, or critical theory anymore in my life. So this was very useful well, to, and like helpful. And, and this is to boosting. a totally unoriginal and uninteresting observation, but that's like the thing that we keep coming back to in these discussions is that it's like, you don't really get space for this. Like, it's not a requirement of a formal academic life, but it's, like, such... It's not a formal requirement of a academic life, but it's so crucial to just, like, yeah. the overall intellectual well-being and emotional well-being that, like, thinking with other people is something that, if you don't make space for it, you miss. Yeah. Well, and, right. like, I... Yeah, I love that. And, like, I try to... The way that I try to introduce my students to political theory is like, this is a conversation mm -hmm. and you're joining the conversation. And I just feel like the last few months, like, you know, I love being in my parents' house, but I'm not having conversations with them about the stuff I'm working on. Right. So right. like that's like, I, I miss the conversation part of it. Yeah. Yes. Right. And thus I would plug write things with your friends yeah. <laughs> i have written stuff with both sid and emily and we'll soon be writing something with danielle um and like even though in political theory that is less common do right. it anyway yeah Ooh, wait just thought of a new idea okay <laughs> writing with friends as a political theoretical expression of like political solidarity so it's like blending the it. kind of like you know methods in political right. theory political theory as pedagogy conversation with like 
our role as political theorists in the society that we live in, blah, blah, blah. I love, I love it. it. This sounds like the foreword to our collected. hypothetical, always already podcast uh, book of collected essays. I think this <laughs> is becoming increasingly more concrete and less hypothetical, and that we should work on a proposal. <laughs> That's probably, let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> Happily, we'll contribute. <laughs> yes, we've oh, and yeah. we've had so many guests. It would all be excellent contributors. I think I think we should make it happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On that note, (laughs) should we wrap up? Yeah. Danielle, thank you so much for joining us. It was my pleasure. Thank you guys for having me. This was wonderful. Any, any? Sorry, I'm I'm reading the chat and just trying not to burst (laughs) out. Nice. (laughs) And and we're going to leave this in even without any context. (laughs) Uh, Little inside baseball. Inside baseball, indeed. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes, Danielle, it was absolutely wonderful uh, to have you on the Only Authority podcast. Stay tuned for whatever's next. And (laughs) we, I, I think there will be actual episodes coming up soon. There was a text thread among uh, a group text among all of us earlier, right before we were hopping on recording about some possible plans. So stay tuned for that. Keep your eyes peeled on. Twitter, (laughs) (laughs) virtualized, Facebook, all of our other platforms, plug, plug. (laughs) Emily, you have a sign off to give to It's been so long I've forgotten. (laughs) Have an always already day. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the Always Ready Podcast, which is brought to you by James Paglioni Jr., Rachel Brown, B. Lee Altman, Emily Crandall, Sidisar, and John McMahon. Visit our website, alwaysreadypodcast.wordpress.com. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at alwaysreadyon. Subscribe to our feed. Recommend it to your friends. Leave us a good rating on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever it is you're listening right now. And if you would like, you can contribute to our Patreon, patreon.com slash alwaysreadypodcast, which provides us with an excellent opportunity to thank our patrons. We have a special announcement of the very first ever member of the Always Ready Podcast, Medici Club, Jason. Jason, thank you for your generous support. You have been contacted by us in the next tier, which is the Always Ready Circle of Trust. We'd like to thank Genevieve, Guava, Extinction, David, Stephanie, Laura, Leonte, Roddy, Ariel, and Catherine in the Friend of the Podcast category. We would like to thank Xiaowei, Natalie, Ian, Thomas, Theory Talk, Rachel, and Matthew. Thank you, as always already, to Bad Infinity for their song Post Digital, which you heard in the intro and in the uh, uh, segue, uh, in intersperse, interstitial part of the podcast. And always already thank you to B for their cover of Landslide, which you are listening to right now. Stay tuned. We have some stuff that I think seems pretty cool to us coming out uh, in the works, I should say, that we're figuring out the details for. And uh, until then, have an always already day. Sorry, that was a tangent. I'm trying also not to make noise with my keyboard. (laughs) Technology. I don't know if it's working.
this his vulgar Marxist question. I did have in my notes a question when is Sid going to raise the question of racial capitalism? I know. I I wanted to wait. I wanted to wait till at least 35 minutes. And I think I managed to do that. You did it right at 36.50. Yes. I'm proud of myself. And then kind of relatedly, I mean. I I guess 